Welcome to the serialized audiobook, Pandemic, book three of the Infected Trilogy. Written by number one New York Times bestselling novelist, Scott Sigler. Performed by Phil Giganti. Pandemic is also available in print, ebook, and unabridged audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com slash pandemic. Chapter 30 Cocktail Party Flames soared from cars, trucks, delivery vans, and buses, destroying any night vision capability. Heat from a dozen fires chased away the winter night's chill. This wasn't a couple of indigs hucking a bottle to pretend they could fight back against the oppressors. This was a concentrated, planned, sustained attack. From the north, south, east, and west, men called for backup. Polyus had no backup to send. The converted stayed behind their cover of burned-out cars and trucks, providing few targets to hit. When heads did pop up, the SEALs and the Rangers took them out. His overwatch had mowed down most of the enemy's high positions and were now picking off anything that moved. The Molotov barrage had slowed since the attack began five minutes earlier, but still the bombs poured in, a constant symphony of breaking glass and billowing flame. The converted had to be using a sling of some kind, something to hurl the gas-filled bottles farther than any man could possibly throw. He clicked his talk button. This is Klimas. Can anyone up top see what they're using to launch those Molotovs? Negative, Commander. Came back Roth's voice. The bad guys put burning tires in front of their perimeter wall. Too much smoke to see what's going on. Through the flames and the constant gunfire, Polly has heard the roar of approaching helicopters. Apaches, lining up an attack run. These local yokels were about to get a rude awakening courtesy of chain gun music. He peeked out under the bumper of a delivery truck looked east along Chicago Avenue. Many Molotovs had fallen short and crashed into the pavement. The flickering flames made the air waver and warp. Through that, Polyus saw bits of movement about thirty meters out, heads peeking above cars, shadows sliding from vehicle to vehicle. Heads. And something else. Something smaller, lower to the ground. Roth's deep voice again. This is East Overlook. We have large numbers of enemy infantry advancing on us from the east on Chicago Avenue. Holy shit, boys. Looks like thousands of them. Mixed units. People in those hatchling things. Klimas switched to the Ranger channel. Seal Commander to Captain Dundee. Seal Commander to Captain Dundee. The Ranger Commander answered instantly. Dundee, here go. We have a battalion-sized force of infantry attacking from the east. Same from the north, south, and west, Dundee said. Drone video confirms. Weapons free, Polyus said. Shoot anything that isn't us and maintain our perimeter. Roger that. Dundee out. Polyus switched back to the SEAL channel as a nearby ranger opened up with a long burst from a 240. Weapons free. I repeat, weapons free. All but squad weapons use single fire. Make your shots count, boys. I don't think we brought enough bullets. He clicked off, then leaned out past the front fender, just enough for the barrel of his M4 to aim down the street. Three black hatchlings rushed toward him, running through the pools of fire rather than around them. Flames clung to their black pyramid bodies, curled around their tentacle legs. So fast. I've never seen anything that fast. 
Polly's pulled the trigger twice. Pop, pop. The middle hatchling went down hard. Another one dropped, either from a ranger's bullet or from one of his overwatchmen up on the fifth floor. The creature's forward momentum rolled it awkwardly beneath a burning car. The third hatchling closed to within five meters. Don't fire till you see the blacks of their eyes flash through Polyus's mind, right before he dropped it with another two-bullet burst. The thunder of the Apache's rotors echoed through the city canyons. The tone suddenly became more raw, more real, as the first helicopter came around a building into plain sight, just behind the oncoming wave of attackers. Polyus heard the sharp snare drum sound of M-230 chain guns opening up. A Molotov landed ten feet to his left, forcing him away from the front fender. He scrambled to the rear fender, looked around it. Through the flickering flames and the shimmering air, he saw the enemy rushing forward, hundreds of hatchlings, and behind them an endless wave of people. As fast as he could, Polyus yanked grenades from his webbing and threw them at the oncoming mob. Chapter 31 Streets of Fire Frank Sokolovsky wondered if there could be anywhere colder than where he stood, besides the roof of the John Hancock building, sixty stories up in the dead of night, with a Chicago winter wind whipping in at twenty miles an hour. That was some cold shit right there. He had worked his way through college on the G.I. Bill. He'd served most of one tour in Afghanistan, before an IED blew his left foot clean off. Frank had considered himself lucky. Not only had he lived, he'd been given a medical discharge and gone home to Hyde Park, to his job as a shipping manager, to his wife, Carol, and their daughter, Shelley. Frank had felt God's touch earlier than most. It came with pain, as did all things truly worth having. Carol knew something had changed. She knew even before Frank did, to be honest. He'd made some comment about disciplining Shelley. He still couldn't remember exactly what he'd said. But when he woke up the next morning, Carol and Shelley were both gone. That was too bad, because from that morning on, he'd known exactly what he would have done to them both. Frank had left his house and just wandered. His first kill had been a mouthy old lady. Leave me alone, the bitch had said. Can you imagine? Please, no, she had said. The nerve of some people. He discovered new friends. Together they found humans, killed them. Then word came of a true leader, a leader asking for everyone with military experience. Emperor Stanton and General Brownstone gave him a wonderful responsibility, a Stinger missile. For two days, Frank Sokolovsky had frozen his ass off atop the Hancock. People brought him food. Once they'd brought him a whole arm, already cooked. There was probably half of that left. Finally, though, the waiting was over. He stood still, mostly hidden from sight, the stinger on his right shoulder, watching the Apache fly down Michigan Avenue about thirty feet below his rooftop elevation. The helicopter's nose was tipped down, its thirty-millimeter chain gun transforming the street below into a sparkling river of death. The screaming war machine flew past, just before Frank pressed the fire button, he understood, without a doubt, that everything happened for a reason. He had needed money for college, so he joined the army. He'd served in Afghanistan, where he'd learned to fire this kind of weapon, where he'd suffered the injury that brought him home, 
so he could become enlightened at just the right time. Anyone who considered that a coincidence was a fool. Frank knew the hand of God when he saw it, and for that guidance he whispered a fast prayer of thanks. He pressed the button. A Stinger launcher fires a FIM-92B missile, 60 inches long, 22 pounds. It is supersonic capable and can reach speeds of Mach 2.2. Frank's missile didn't attain that speed because it was only in the air for three seconds. One second of flight powered by the launcher's ejection motor, which hurled the missile out into the pre-dawn sky, and two seconds of flight powered by the missile's solid-fuel rocket engine. The FIM-92B penetrated right between the Apache's twin turboshaft engines. The war had erupted, blowing both engines off the machine with such force that one flew 300 feet to hammer into the glass and steel of Water Tower Place. The other engine clipped a building roof before Comet streaking into Chestnut Street, disintegrating into a cloud of tumbling red-hot shards that shredded everything in their path. In an Apache, the gunner sits in front, the pilot above and behind him, an armored wall between them. The explosion killed the pilot instantly. The armor kept the gunner alive long enough for the flaming helicopter to fall 700 feet to the street below, where he died on impact. The wreckage smashed into the converted running down Michigan Avenue, a rolling fireball that pounded flesh into paste. Pieces of the Apache broke off and crashed into stores, shattering glass, breaking walls and starting several fires. Frank Sokolovsky stared down at his handiwork. He felt bad about where the helicopter had hit, how many of his kind had died. That was part of God's plan, though, and who was he to question God? To the south, he saw another Apache start to climb. Maybe it had seen Frank's target go down and wanted to get some altitude, but it was already too late. A chasing flicker betrayed a stinger fired from the roof of the Marriott on North Rush Street. Coincidentally, Frank and Carol had stayed in that very hotel on their honeymoon. He laughed when the fireball engulfed the Apache. The Fourth of July was nothing compared to this. The flaming Apache banked and flew into another skyscraper, impacting at about the 30th floor. Frank didn't know the name of that building. He shivered and set down his launcher. Unless someone brought him another missile, his work was done. He looked around. He'd fully expected that as soon as he fired, another helicopter would have swept in and killed him. Maybe God had bigger plans for him. He'd head back inside, build a little fire, and see if he could thaw out some of that arm. Frank heard the Hellfire missile, but he never saw it. By the time he turned around, the Predator-fired weapon detonated within 15 feet of him tearing him into three good-sized pieces that all sailed over the side of the John Hancock building. Fire danced around the park tower's ruined entrance. Icy, driving wind fed the flames. Clarence felt simultaneously hot and cold, and yet he also felt neither of those things. His mind focused on the battle, on the details that would keep him alive, let him find Margaret. Apaches are down, said a voice in his headset. Bad guys have Sam's. Tell the Chinooks to abort pickup, said another voice. If we lose them, the only way out is on foot. 
Clarence had a ranger on his left, two on his right, all firing at the attackers scrambling over the perimeter cars. If only they'd extracted Cooper Mitchell as soon as they found him, then they wouldn't be facing this army of converted. But Margaret had insisted staying was critical, and Clarence had believed her. A voice on the open channel screamed for help. A burst of gunfire cut the scream short. So much panicked chatter. Men shouted for help. It sounded like the Rush Street perimeter was about to be overrun. Something whizzed past his ear. He instinctively jerked backward. So fast he fell onto his ass. He'd come within inches of taking a round in the face. There weren't any reinforcements coming in. Air support was gone. The Rangers wouldn't be able to hold. Clarence had to keep Cooper Mitchell alive. He turned and ran into the lobby. Feely, get Cooper on his feet. We have to move. A maskless Tim shook his head so hard his spiky blonde hair flopped back and forth. No way. Klima said to stay right here. Clarence ignored him. Cooper was sitting on the floor, looking around. Still groggy, but his eyes seemed normal, alert. Clarence knelt in front of him. Mr. Mitchell, you with us? The man's eyes widened and blinked rapidly at the same time. Then they focused, locked on Clarence's. Yeah, he said. I'm just a little fuzzy, maybe. And call me Cooper. Can you walk, Cooper? He nodded. Tim leaned in. Otto, we have to stay here. Clarence heard a hissing roar. His body reacted. He grabbed Tim and pulled him on top of a surprised Cooper, covering them both with his own body, a moment before a crushing blast drove them all against the shaking floor. In the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, it's vital for Pura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. island in frigid lake superior a fabricated creature birthed from the mind of a disturbed genius stalks the very people who created it ancestor by number one new york times best-selling author scott sigler is a classic tale of science gone horribly wrong available wherever you get your podcasts chapter 32 Front toward enemy. Paulius kept firing and reloading, his hands acting on autopilot while his brain tried to work out the rapidly deteriorating situation. They lost air superiority. Even with a significant advantage in firepower, they were outnumbered at least a hundred to one. 
The snipers on the fifth floor were the only thing keeping the hostiles from overrunning Klimas's position. At their rate of fire, they'd run out of ammo in mere minutes. Ranger-fired mortars thumped every few seconds, followed by popping explosions out beyond the perimeter. The firing arcs were short enough that Polyus felt the concussion wave of each detonation. The constant roar of the 240s, the pops of M4s, and the barks of Benelli shotguns told him the perimeter remained intact. M23 grenade launchers countered the endless barrage of Molotov cocktails, filling Chicago Avenue with shrapnel. And still the converted came on, hatchlings and armed militants stepping over the shattered and still-twitching bodies of their comrades, twenty meters and closing. He thumbed his talk button. Claymores now! Light em up! He'd barely finished his sentence before the powerful mines started detonating, each one a horizontal storm of 700 one-eighth-inch steel balls shooting out horizontally at a speed of 1,200 meters per second. The enemy's soldiers were packed in so tight, Polyus could see the Claymore's blast patterns in the expanding cones of shredded bodies. The advance slowed. The enemy suddenly broke, turned, and ran, leaving behind hundreds of dead and dying. The little snow that remained on the street had turned into red slush, soaking up the blood that flowed down the sidewalk gutters. Chapter 33 I Am the Law Steve Stanton lowered his binoculars. Chicken shits, he said. They're running! General Brownstone nodded. Too much enemy firepower. Looks like we inflicted some casualties, though. If I may suggest, Emperor... We should use the M-72 light anti-tank weapons to target their snipers and all our launched grenades to cover the second wave's advance. That was the right call, and Steve knew it. He'd been hoping the first wave would overwhelm the human soldiers, but they were too well trained and too well armed. We don't have many of those M-72s, General. She nodded again. Yes, Emperor. However, I'm certain the humans detonated all of their claymores, and they have to be running low on ammunition. Our fast ground attack should breach their perimeter if we can clear out the snipers. If the second wave didn't work, Steve's only option was to launch the third wave. That wave was supposed to be his containment wave, the troops that would kill anyone, converted included, that came out of the hotel. He didn't have time to think it through. The humans could send more helicopters at any moment, and his people had used up most of the stingers. The humans were running out of ammo but so were the chosen ones. He raised the binoculars. General Brownstone, launch wave two. Chapter 34 A Man's Word Polly has ejected a spent magazine, popped in a fresh one. The enemy had fallen back, but they were still firing. He'd found new cover behind a white delivery truck, Bullets smacked into the metal body so fast it sounded like an off-rhythm drummer experimenting with a new song. One ranger lay dying to his left. Another to his right was already gone, or he would have screamed from the flames that engulfed his chest and arm. An explosion came from the towering hotel above and behind him. Paulius looked up to see a cloud of thin smoke billowing from the fifth floor, window shards tumbling down to the street below. He saw a second explosion. A there-and-gone fireball blowing out a cloud of spinning glass, shredded insulation, and torn metal. 
He thumbed his seal channel. Overwatch! Displace! Rockets targeting fifth floor! Another explosion hit the hotel, farther to the right. Three smoldering holes gaped wide, making the building look like a tree chopped at the base that might topple over and crash into the street. The interior perimeter suddenly lit up with hard-hitting snap explosions that cast out waves of dirt and snow. Polyus threw himself face-first to the pavement. There wasn't much one could do against a grenade volley, but lie low and pray. A machine gun barked. A man shouting, Here they come again! drew Polyus's attention back to the street. He stayed on his belly, aimed his M4 under the truck, found his first targets. A pair of kids. Kids, damn it. Sprinting forward, each holding a kitchen knife. He took them out. Two shots for the first, three for the second. And then, Polyus saw something that his eyes couldn't immediately process. A taxi, sliding sideways toward the perimeter, toward him, smashing bodies aside, tires pushing up little waves of red slush. There was something behind that car. Something big. All units concentrate fire on that taxi! The taxi's doors blossomed with new holes as rangers and seals alike focused their fire. But the vehicle was moving too fast. It was too late to stop it. Polyus dove away from the delivery truck a moment before the cab crashed in. The truck toppled, smashed down on its right side. A ranger who had been using the truck for cover didn't make it clear. The heavy vehicle crushed his left foot, trapping him. Klimas rolled to his feet, came up ready to fire, and for the first time in his military career, he froze. A monster, eight feet tall, shoulders and chest rippling with thick coils of muscle. Molotov firelight played off wet, dark yellow skin. Open sores dotted the body, some trailing visible rivulets of pus. The wide neck supported a huge, heavy-jawed head, topped with spotty patches of tight, curly black hair. The face seemed toy-like compared to the oversized body. Its mouth was full of long, thick teeth that could easily rip flesh from bones, and sticking up from behind each clenched fist, a long, jagged, pointed arc of bone. The trapped ranger rolled to his back, stared up at the monstrosity only a foot away. The ranger screamed. The yellowish beast raised a bare foot, drove it down into the ranger's stomach. The soldier's screaming stopped. His hands weakly gripped the long leg. Then his fingers slid away, and his arms fell limply to the wet pavement. The monster leaned down and roared. Klimas heard the telltale thoop of a grenade launcher. An explosion knocked the massive creature back, splashing his bloody entrails in a long streak across the white top of the overturned truck. Gunfire brought Polyus out of it. Gunfire aimed at him. A man and a woman sprinting around the delivery truck. The man firing a rifle the screaming woman aiming a shotgun. In less than a second, Klimas hit them each twice. The man dropped hard. The woman landed face first and slid across the packed snow. Klimas fired twice more, aiming for her head, but his shots hit her back instead. As she slid, she raised the shotgun one-handed, screamed, Asshole! and fired. He felt the blast smack into the left side of his chest and belly felt a dozen needles dig deep as some of them found ways around the gaps in his body armor. She slid to a stop. He put a bullet in her head, then looked up. 
A dozen more hostiles poured in around the truck. Two of them tackled a fleeing ranger. Another ranger lay on the ground, screaming obscenities at the three people on top of him, one biting his face, another stabbing a knife into his right thigh over and over again. And just beyond the truck, Polyus saw two more of the yellow monsters rushing in fast. His position was being overrun. I promised Feely I'd get him out, and if I don't save him and Mitchell, then all this is for nothing. Polyus turned and ran, tossing a flashbang behind him. Up ahead, smoke billowed out of the hotel's entrance. All exterior seals fall back to the hotel. Our mission is to get the civilians to safety. Someone find me another way out of that building. Chapter 35 Everyone Loves a Parade Steve Stanton really, really wanted to ride on Jeff's back, like Hannibal riding an elephant into battle. But that was a bad idea. There were probably still a few human snipers left in the park tower. So instead of riding in glory, the Emperor of Chicago walked toward the hotel. He walked slowly and far back from the still-advancing second wave. Steve stayed a few steps behind Jeff so the bull's wide body would block any stray fire. Hundreds of bodies lined the streets, victims of mines, snipers, and grenades. Where dying flames didn't burn, the pavement ran red with blood. As Steve advanced, his third wave came out of hiding. They slid out of cars, stepped out of doorways, all carrying weapons that had yet to be fired. They walked toward the hotel. There were thousands of them, so many and so thick it looked like a well-organized parade. The third wave included most of the converted who had been soldiers in their former lives. Each of them managed ten civilians. The soldiers communicated via hand signals, runners, cell phones, and most also had some form of radio or walkie-talkie that the scavengers had found in electronics, toy, and sporting goods stores. Where the first wave had been cannon fodder, as had most of the second, the third wave was an organized combat force. General Brownstone had gone up ahead to get a closer look. She jogged back toward him. General, have we entered the hotel yet? No, Emperor, she said. The human perimeter is collapsing and the building is on fire, but there is still resistance. Shouldn't be long now. The third wave is already setting up the containment ring. Nothing is going to get out of that hotel alive. Containment. That was the key. They'd kill Cooper Mitchell, then kill his killers, and God willing, forever wipe out his horrid disease. Steve checked his phone. 4.19 a.m. The battle had taken only nine minutes. In warfare, apparently things happened fast. He pulled his coat tighter and watched the hotel burn. Chapter 36 Reunited Gunfire. Flames. Yelling and screaming, the sounds of panic, of fury, all barely audible over a high-pitched ringing. Tim lifted his head. His body felt numb. Cooper Mitchell struggled to his feet. The man looked terrified and shell-shocked. Clarence was still down, unconscious. His gas mask was gone. A long piece of metal jutted out of his shoulder blade, blood trickling from his CBRN suit. The sight of that blood brought Tim out of it. He pushed himself to his knees, scrambled across the rubble to Otto's side. The shard hadn't penetrated that far. 
There wasn't time to do things properly, so he grabbed the shard and yanked. Clarence twitched, moaned, and rolled over. Tim looked around for a bandage, a towel, anything remotely clean to press on the wound. Gunfire and the explosion had shredded his medical supplies, scattering them all across the burning lobby. He helped Clarence sit up, waved Cooper over. Cooper stumbled toward them. Tim grabbed the man's hand and pressed it against Otto's wound. Keep pressure here, Tim said. Press hard. Clarence's lip curled up, his eyes scrunched tight in pain. My weapon, he said. Someone find my weapon. Tim heard a shout above the unending den, a single word. Grenade. Something exploded across the lobby, close to the front door. A ranger fell back, crying out in agony. Tim stood and started toward the wounded man, but Klima sprinted through the doors and cut Tim off. Feely, run! Take the package to the stairwell! Move! Tim reached for Cooper, then saw Otto's pistol on the floor. He snatched it up, shoved it into Otto's hands, then pulled Cooper toward the stairwell door at the rear of the lobby. Tim looked back, saw Klimas lift Otto to his feet and push him toward the stairwell. The CO commander suddenly wheeled, fired at three men who ran through the entrance. Pop, pop, slight turn, pop, pop, slight turn, pop, pop. The three men fell to the floor. Another explosion hurled shards of metal, stone, and wood across the lobby. Cooper reached the stairwell door first. He pulled it open as Tim rushed through and stepped on the landing. Otto reached the door, pushed Cooper inside hard, then held the door open with his body. He aimed out into the lobby and started firing his pistol. Klimas! He screamed. Come on, get in here! Feely, take Mitchell upstairs! Tim again grabbed Cooper's arm. Come on, Tim said, then started up the steps and stopped cold. One landing up stood Margaret Montoya. Tim stared at her for a long second. She stared back. Both of them were too surprised to move. Margaret reached for the gun strapped to her right thigh. Save Cooper, save Cooper, save Cooper! Tim slid his body in front of Cooper, put his hands down and back, hemming him in. Margaret raised her pistol, pointed it at Tim's face. Tim wanted to close his eyes, but he couldn't. They stayed locked wide open. He wondered if his brain would be able to process the muzzle flash before the bullet ended his life. Clarence stepped in front of him, his weapon aimed at his wife. Margaret, put it down! Tim saw her face change, instantly morphing from a hateful, snarling-eyed visage to a soft expression of love and concern like someone had flipped a switch. Clarence, she said. Tim is lying to you. I'm not infected. He is. Kill him before he kills us. The heavy stairwell door slammed open. Klimas came through, his weapon up and aimed at Margaret in a fraction of a second. Otto, he said. You got this? I do, Clarence said. Clarence's aim didn't waver. Neither did Margaret's. Klimas turned, opened the stairwell door a few inches, and fired into the lobby. He yanked a grenade out of his webbing, pulled the pin, underhand tossed it through the small gap, then slammed the metal door shut. Tim heard the grenade explode, heard men and women screaming in agony. An army of psychos and monsters were closing in from behind, 
An armed and infected Margaret Montoya blocked the only escape. If Clarence Otto didn't shoot his wife, Tim was going to die one way or the other. Chapter 37 Sharpshooter Cooper Mitchell was standing right there. Right there. Margaret had checked her suit. It was safe. Had to be safe. The Antichrist was just a half-flight down, and she couldn't die. Not now. Not now. Not when her people were coming. Clarence stood in front of Tim, who stood in front of Cooper Mitchell. The look in Clarence's eyes, pained, yet committed to doing his job. He wanted to believe she wasn't infected. Margaret, he said, put it down. Why hadn't she just fired right away? She'd frozen, surprised by Tim, shocked to see her target right in front of her. She'd missed her chance. Clarence, listen to me, she said. Honey, Tim is one of them. Why do you think he told everyone I was in... A crack sound echoed through the stairwell as something slammed into her hand. Her pistol clattered against the wall, then hit the concrete floor. She took a step back, looked at her hand. Blood, spurting all over her CRBN suit. Her index finger, gone. She staggered, slumped down the wall. But he didn't shoot. I was looking right at him. Clarence ran up the stairs toward her. Down by the landing door, she saw Klimas. His rifle pointed at her. A curl of smoke drifted up from the barrel. You have been listening to Pandemic, book three of the Infected Trilogy by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler. Performed by Phil Giganti. Produced by Empty Set Entertainment. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the roll of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts.